Now it's time for Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf, the number one relationship advice radio show in the U.S. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Ask Dr. Love. I'm Dr. Jamie Turndorf, and it's my pleasure to be with you again today. Today, we're talking about how childhood wounds cause chronic fighting and how to use your relationship to heal these childhood wounds. I call them old scars, by the way. And if you've read my first Hay House book, Kiss Your Fights Goodbye, and you're familiar with my conflict resolution method, you know that chronic relationship fighting is often caused by old scars from childhood. And my method guides you to identify the old scars that are creating your relationship distress and show you effective ways to heal these old scars. Now, when I speak of effective healing, what am I talking about? Effective healing um, relates to the fact that the unconscious mind left to its own devices has an ineffective way of attempting to heal our psychological traumas, to replay, generally with our life partner, the painful events of the past in the hope of achieving a better outcome this time around. Now, unfortunately, our efforts to achieve our emotional happy ending usually fail, and bitter arguments are the sad result. But our need to heal our old scars from childhood drives us to hang in and keep swinging on the same subject of conflict again and again to no avail. And this leads to fight repetition. When the same fights occur regularly and intense arguing occurs, these are your two clues that old scars are causing your fights. So repetition is your first clue. The first way that we recreate our early traumas is by choosing a partner who emotionally resembles the parent who was the source of our early pain, the one we had the most trouble with. So keep in mind that even the most well-intentioned parent will fail from time to time and will even traumatize his or her child. So you may be thinking, I didn't choose my husband or my wife because he or she is like my father or mother. I picked my partner because he has great buns or he makes a delicious macaroni salad. <laughs> well, these are the conscious aspects of mate selection. But in actuality, mate selection is primarily driven by the unconscious motivation to choose someone who possesses the traits that resemble the parent who injured you. And I call this setting the stage. We set the stage not because we're gluttons for punishment, but because the unconscious mind has a master plan to replay our childhood traumas with a person who symbolizes the parent who injured us and to work for that happy ending. And no, I'm not talking about the X-rated massage parlor happy ending. I'm talking about an emotional happy ending in which you manage to get your partner to give you the kind of treatment you yearned for from the parent who let you down or harmed you outright. Let me give you an example. This example involves a woman named Janelle. Her father abused her verbally. And not surprisingly, she married a man who belittled her daily. She came to see me very depressed, not understanding why she was treated so horribly by her husband. By marrying a verbally abusive man, 
Janelle unconsciously hoped to transform her husband into a person who treated her with respect and love. And if she could pull this off, it would feel as if she succeeded in making her father come around and her original old scar would be healed. Now, the plan looks great on paper, but rarely works in real life for two reasons. First, when we choose partners who resemble the parents who let us down, we soon discover that our partners are incapable of providing the emotional responses we need precisely because they are damaged or limited in the exact same areas that our parents were. And the second reason our healing attempts fail is that we adopt with our partners the same strategies that we employed with our parents. And given that our methods didn't succeed with our parents, they sure aren't gonna hit the jackpot with our partners. We soon feel frustrated, we are hurt, we're furious, but since our unconscious goal is to heal at any cost, we stay in the ring and keep swinging because the need to engage in repeated healing attempts is so universal. It actually has a name and that is the repetition compulsion. Now, intensity is your second clue. Fight intensity is your second clue that old scars are fueling your fights. Fight intensity is a clue that unfinished business lurks beneath the surface of your fights. Oh, unfinished business I'm using as synonymous with old scars. And it goes without saying that each time you battle through the same fight and you lose, you don't succeed in resolving the fight, you are more aggravated than the time before. But there's another reason for the intensity of your reactions. So in a nutshell, the unconscious mind constantly links present day slights with the wounds you suffered as a kid. This is what I call the emotional lake effect. Well, think about the actual lake effect blizzard. Well, a storm gathers moisture and energy as it moves across large expanses of warmer lake water and dumps mounds of snow on the lake's leeward shores. The unconscious mind does a similar thing. As the mind dips into the reservoir of your unconscious, it dredges up memories of similar hurts that you suffered as a kid. And the next thing you know, you're blowing an emotional gasket because you are reliving all the pain of previous similar offenses. And this explains why fireworks are going off inside of you, even though the current event doesn't seem to warrant such an explosive reaction. To complicate matters, these associations are happening on an unconscious level, meaning your feeling memories are disembodied from the actual old scarring events. And as a result, it's easy to mistakenly assume that the mountain of emotions you're experiencing now, the mountain is the result of whatever your partner just did or said. And the next thing you know, you're aiming your broadsides at your partner and dumping old emotional baggage onto him or her without realizing what's going on. And this heats the environment to a sizzle. Let me give you an example. Bob repeatedly checks his office messages when he's out with Mary. Mary becomes increasingly agitated by this behavior and finally she blows up at him. Well, why is she so furious over a seemingly innocuous action? because this experience with Bob triggers memories of her mother who never had time for her. So when a trivial incident occurs in the present, it surges that already overloaded circuit in her brain and she blows. These associations usually occur without any conscious awareness. Let me give you a quick old scars test. 
And this test is going to help you determine whether your arguments are being fueled by your old scars or your partner's old scars. Just say in your mind, true or false to the following questions I'm going to ask you. The subjects that we fight about are repetitive in nature, true or false. I find myself and or my partner becoming intensely upset over little things and I can't understand why, true or false. I find myself and or my partner using the same words, explanations, and fighting tactics during our spats, even though these methods never work, true or false. I always end up with the same feelings before, during, and after our fights, true or false. Our fights seem familiar to me, but I can't put my finger on why, true or false. I feel there's a scripted nature to our fights and that I can actually predict their same sorry outcome. True or false? I remember fighting with my parent or parents and feeling the same feelings that I feel now when I fight with my partner. True or false? And the last question, the feelings that I have after a fight with my partner remind me of how I felt as a kid. True or false? If you answer true to more than one of my questions, old scars are contributing to your fights. Now, even though you realize that old scars are causing your fights, you may still feel at a loss to understand what exact old scar, what specific piece of your history is being played out in your relationship fights now. And it's often difficult to determine the issues, the old scars that underlie your arguments because the fight content, the current fight content operates like a smoke screen. So when you're arguing over dirty socks or pots and pans piled in the sink, it's very difficult to abstract from these concrete subjects and see the old scar that is underneath your fights. So I have developed a method that I call stripping. And no, I'm not talking about getting naked. I'm talking about a technique that I created, which involves drawing a fight map that enables you to strip away the overt fight content, just like a restorer strips the outer layers of paint from an object to reveal the original finish. You can go beneath the outer layer, the overt fight content to reveal the underlying traumas that lurk below. So I'm gonna just talk you through how to strip away the overt fight content to reveal the old scar that lurks. And what we're going to do is we want to know what's beneath the overt fight, the who did what to whom. And to do this, you want to flesh out on paper what I call the emotional mapping of the fight. And to do this, you forget the apparent content of the fight. The you brought home Chinese food and it wasn't what I wanted, or you rushed foreplay. You forget all the overt content and study the emotional content. So I'm going to give you an example of one couple's overt fight, and then I'm going to draw upon their example to show you how you can strip away the content of your fights to uncover the old scar. So here's the overt fight, and I'm going to quote their words. Why can't you just take me out sometimes? Would it kill you to make me happy? Nancy says, and Phil says, no, it wouldn't kill me. And she says, so what's your problem? He says, God, I'm so busy with work and you're worried about stupid outings. 
she says. It's not stupid. It's important to me. And that should matter to you. He says, you matter. Why do you think I work as hard as I do? She says, what's work got to do with my feelings? You don't care about me at all. He says, that's right. I don't care about you at all. I don't stay up drinking. I don't cheat, but I don't care. He shouts as he storms from the room. And she says, God, I can't talk to you. You just won't listen. All right. So that's the overt fight. Now we're going to draw a fight map. And the first step in drawing their fight map is to chart the emotional course of the fight. So in the first step, you think of your common fight, a common one. And for the moment, forget the content of the fight. Focus on the feelings the fight stirs in you and write down the feelings. Now I'm going to demonstrate how Nancy and Phil stripped away the overt fight content to reveal the emotional mapping of their issue. So from Nancy's point of view, I want something from Phil. He makes excuses as to why he can't give me what I want. I get angry. He becomes more defensive. I get angrier. He digs in his heels even further. I feel hurt that he doesn't love me enough to listen and change the behaviors that annoy me. So I press harder and harder and he withdraws further and further into excuses and denial. Okay, that's Nancy's fight map. Now, Phil's fight map. When Nancy wants something from me, she orders me around and manipulates me. She gives me no freedom whatsoever. I have to do exactly as she wants or else she's furious. I feel angry like a trapped animal. I feel like running to escape her rage and demands. Okay, now this is the next step, step two recognize the feelings that you experienced in childhood. So now you want to ask yourself, does the fight with my partner stir the same feelings I felt as a kid? Write those feelings down and then ask yourself, who triggered these feelings in me? So let's see what Nancy and Phil came up with for this second step. Nancy recalled feeling impotent, frustrated, hurt, and angry when she tried unsuccessfully to get her father to respond to her. And Phil felt controlled by his mother and enraged by how she forced him to do her will. Whenever he defied her, he had to suffer her fury and threats of abandonment. Okay, now step three, we call a specific childhood memory. So next you want to uncover an early memory in which you felt the way you feel when you argue with your partner. With whom were you struggling? What happened? How did the fight play out when you were a kid? And write all this down. Now, here's how Nancy and Phil handled this step, step. Nancy recalled pleading with her father to come to at least one of her softball games, and he never showed. She begged and she cried, but he didn't relent. And Phil remembered his mother forcing him to clean up his room on a sunny day, and when he resisted, she shouted at him and locked him in his room without dinner. Now, this is the next step, step four identify the type of treatment you yearn for from your parent. This next step is identifying your happy ending. So finally, and most important of all, you're going to ask yourself, how did I wish my struggles with my parent had worked out? Did I wish that my parent would apologize or see my point of view? Did I wish my parent would compromise? So clearly identify your desired outcome and write this down. So let's return to Nancy and Phil for this last step. Nancy wished her father had responded to her requests, at least sometimes, and Phil needed to feel free to assert himself without being punished. 
Once you've identified the treatment you desired from your parent, you have a fairly good understanding of what your mind is hoping to accomplish in your fights with your partner, your happy ending. So the question now becomes, why don't most of us succeed in obtaining our happy endings with our partners? Why didn't Nancy succeed in obtaining what she needed from Phil? So remember, Phil is just like Nancy's father. And she relates to him the way she related to her dad. So she used to yell, scream, yell, pout, and whine at her father without effect. And since Phil resembles her father, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out why Nancy's methods aren't cutting it. And the fact that she's chosen a mate like her father can't be changed. But what can be changed is her way of dealing with him. In other words, this aspect of the repetition compulsion, adopting the same strategies that she used with her father, is under Nancy's control. And if she wishes to achieve her happy ending, she's gonna modify her way of relating to Phil. And the two principles I'm gonna share with you next will help Nancy and you chart a new course of action. So to achieve your happy ending, number one, you've gotta know your mate's old scars. If you're in the dark when it comes to what makes your partner tick, you risk unwittingly ripping open your mate's old scars. And in which case he or she is gonna be nursing his or her own wounds and won't be available to resolve your conflicts. So if necessary, redo the last exercise, answering the questions as you believe your partner would. And that process will help you identify your partner's early wounds. When Nancy reversed roles and did this, she recalled that Phil's mother, mother's child rearing methods fell into the my way or the highway approach. So his early wound related to never having been given sufficient autonomy. And although Nancy hadn't realized it before, her manner of handling her husband, demanding, pressuring, and so on, was painfully reminiscent of the way Phil's mother dealt with him. So Nancy had to face the fact that her pressure tactics were making Phil dig his heels in deeper. So the question became, how could Nancy help Phil be more responsive to her? Well, she could provide him with a communication style that gives him a feeling of choice. One possibility will, would be for Nancy to ask him for suggestions on how to solve their problem. Doing so would put him in the driver's seat. And if he feels in charge rather than controlled, he'll be more responsive to her. Understanding Phil's early wound was Nancy's first step on the road to resolving their fight and healing her own scars as well. Now, Phil establishing an open dialogue with Nancy in which they agree that he can point out to her whenever he experiences, experiences her as pressuring him the way his mother did would not only help Nancy to be more considerate of him, but would also his, assist him in healing his old scar with his mom, which would further enable him to be more responsive to her. So the second thing you want to do is discuss your old scars. To attenuate the intensity of your fights, you want to explain to your partner that an old scar is adding fuel to your fire. Directing the focus off your partner's ego and onto historical sources minimizes the risk of triggering ANS arousal, which I talk a lot about in Kiss Your Fights Goodbye. And it frees your partner to support you and resolve your conflicts instead of feeling the need to defend himself, which is one of the symptoms of the fight-flight response that happens when you're in ANS arousal. So let me give you another example. This one's with Dottie and Russell. 
major turning point for Dottie and Russell occurred when I encouraged Dottie to explain to Russell how his behavior was reminiscent of her mom's. Russell was stiff and speechless and Dottie was beet red. And I said, explain to Russell what he's doing that reminds you of your mother. I urged her to speak. She said, if I tried to tell my mother how I felt, she'd lock me in my room. And she was crying now. He said, I didn't know that. So I said, well, tell Russell specifically what he's doing that reminds you of your mother. And she said, well, when you tell me, don't be upset, it's no big deal. My blood boils. It's like my mother telling me to shut up. He said, I had no idea. I always wanted to make life better for you than it was with your mother. So when Russell's ego was taken off the hook, when he realized that the intensity of Dottie's pain and anger was the result of childhood traumas, her old scars, he felt more willing to support her rather than get defensive and withdraw. This seemingly simple communication, telling your partner what old hurts have been activated by his or her behavior, has helped curtail withdrawal reactions for most of the men and women in my case studies. Try it yourself and you're going to see the miracles that occur. Now, I know sometimes it's hard to pinpoint your old scars. And in Kiss Your Fights Goodbye, I have a technique in there that helps you if you get stuck when, draw, when you're drawing your fight map and you can't figure out the old scar that's fueling your fights. I have a really helpful section in Kiss Your Fights Goodbye where I help you work backwards. And I list the most common relationship arguments. And then I tell you the old scar that's likely causing that type of argument. And then I tell you what steps to take to work together to heal that old scar. Once you begin healing your old scars, you're going to be amazed to see how quickly the relationship climate cools down. ANS arousal and withdrawal behaviors, fight flight behaviors, they're just sent packing. And the result is an end to the chronic fighting. And by the way, these techniques, my conflict resolution method, are the techniques that I brought to the world of after-death communication in my transdimensional grief resolution method. And so these techniques that I'm talking about today can also be applied to helping you resolve unfinished fighting and unresolved issues with those in spirit. Let's take a brief break. And when we come back, I'm going to be answering the questions you sent to me. Be back in a moment. You're listening to Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf. If your heart is still hurting over the bodily loss of your loved one, the reason is simple. We're not meant to be separated from those we love. And reconnecting is the only way to end the grief. But reconnecting and staying connected requires guidance. As a gift to her listeners, Dr. Turndorf is offering a limited number of discounted grief relief sessions to help you reestablish a relationship with loved ones in spirit and resolve any unfinished issues. If you're ready to experience the healing and joy of reconnecting, visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to schedule your session. But don't wait. Space is limited. Visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to find out more. And now, back to Dr. Turndorf. Hello again and welcome back to Ask Dr. Love. I'm Dr. Jamie Turndorf. And now's the time in the show when I'm going to answer the questions that you submitted to me. Uh, some of the people who have asked me questions have told me there was no way they could come into the live studio. So you'll be able to uh, watch this 
recording a couple of days after it live streams on YouTube. And of course, the show will also air all over the place on all podcasting networks and so on and iTunes. It's, it airs everywhere, whatever your favorite platform is. And I will also post a written answer to your questions. And if there's anything you want to share with me or any questions you have uh, regarding my answer, don't hesitate to reach out to me. So here's the first one. The, the question is titled, am I doing enough to help? Dear Dr. Turndorf, a year ago, I stepped away from a high stress, high paying job and took a lower paying day job with some flexibility. My wife works from home, but her job grinds them into working long hours for no additional pay. Once I made my professional change, our weekly routine would involve me taking our oldest child to school, coming back and taking our toddler to school, going to and rushing through my workday, picking up the toddler, taking her to a park or the food store if needed, making dinner, cleaning up from dinner, tidying the toys and vacuuming, and then finishing any work I put off through the day. Since I was typically up late catching up on work, I would normally catch the first crying post bedtime for the toddler and would lay on her floor holding her hand until she fell asleep if needed. My wife tended to notice the 3 a.m. crying if it happened, but I would soothe the toddler anytime I heard her. I worked every other Saturday, but on Saturdays off and Sundays, I would come down with the toddler once she was up so that my wife could catch up on sleep, get a shower, whatever she needed. I would make breakfast and clean up from breakfast. This cycle can be pretty draining, but I don't mind at all. My wife has started to complain that I don't come to bed with her. But I explained that I am finding the work I didn't finish, I am finishing the work I didn't finish during the day due to our schedules. She will also complain that I fall asleep too early for her on the weekends, but I can't keep my eyes open some nights. Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? And should I scale back so I'm more awake when my wife wants me to be? This is a juggling act and I'm trying. Thank you in advance. Okay, you sound like a wonderful husband and father. And when I listened to all that you were doing, I felt like I was just going to fall asleep. And my heart really goes out to you for how hard you're trying to be there for your wife and your kids. It sounds like you're burning the candle at both ends and you're utterly overworked and exhausted. And when you speak about scaling back, I assume you mean scaling back on your job or do you mean scaling back on what you do for the kids? Scaling back at work obviously would mean a lower income Scaling back with the kids would mean putting more on your wife's plate. So you need to ask your wife the question that you asked me. If you scale back on work and have less income, what will that mean for the welfare of the family? How would she feel about your scaling back on work and income? Or how would she feel if you do less for the kids so that you're less exhausted at night and can stay up with her? If you choose this option, the second option, that means she'll have to do more with the kids. And how does she feel about that? In order to devise a plan that works for both of you, you're going to have to have a lot of loving and patient conversations. And when you talk with her, I suggest that you do something that's called leading with the feeling. And I say lead with the feeling because I sense that your wife is feeling unloved by you, not going to bed with her. I sense that she needs verbal reassurance of your love and she needs to hear that you would love nothing better than being able to go to bed with her at the same time 
when you lead with these feelings and tell your wife that you love her and want to be responsive to her request that you stay up later to be with her, you'll be going a long way toward resolving the conflict because you'll be giving her the right feelings. After you lead with the feeling, ask her for her ideas on how you might be able to allocate the work so that you aren't so exhausted. I would also tell her that you don't want to put more on her plate so that you are less tired and she is more tired. So this conversation is going to take some time. So long as you're both open and flexible and patient and listening to each other's feelings, you're going to come up with a solution that embraces everybody's needs. I want to hear from you. I want to hear how you make out. Oh, all right. Here's the next question. And it's titled, is it genuine love or just blind love? Hey there, doctor. Hope you're doing well. There's a guy 11 years older than me and a family friend an important member at church. I've had a crush on the guy for the longest time, about a year and a half. It didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, the guy literally led me on. He would always react to my posts, leave complimentary comments, all those first move type things, but he wasn't saying anything directly. He was moving slow. So I decided to tell him, confess, and it was so natural. He told me he feels the same way and that he just didn't know how to tell me. Cool. So he started phoning to check on me, trying to set a date to meet. However, that never happened. Two weeks after constant calls, he ghosted me and didn't try to get in touch either. One Saturday, he phoned to tell me he'll be coming to my local church and hopes to see me. I was like, cool. After church, he takes me home. We spend about an hour together talking about how us came about and where to go from here. We didn't really get anywhere. He leaves. I phoned him later that day just to check how he traveled. If he got home safe, he didn't answer my call. He never returned the call. That was beginning of December, 2021. When we last spoke late June, 2022, we meet at a church camp. He tells me we need to call, talk. Cool, we talk. He tells me he doesn't really have a valid reason for ghosting me and all. Also low key told me he's in a relationship, but he don't want to let me go doesn't want to lose me. He's very gentle and loving towards me and he makes sure to show it to the world. We spend the night together. Next morning, we go to the morning prayer. He didn't talk to me the whole day. Tried to talk, he messaged me. Following week, we meet again. He apologizes, tells me he's just been busy, but we'll talk later on. We didn't, and again, I try to call him. He doesn't answer. That was the last I heard from him. End of July, we travel together to some place for a church gathering. We don't talk because his friend was there. We got some alone time. He gives me that assuring hug. He tells me I'm such a good person and very responsible. However, we can only talk about our situationship when I'm ready. I'm really confused. I don't know what to do or really think. There's times when I feel like he's just toying with me, and there's times where I feel like the love is there and it's genuine. It's just the circumstances that are blocking this to happen officially. It's close to two years now, and there's not a day I do not think about him. I feel and strongly believe he's the one for me, my husband, father of my kids, but it's just taking forever to unfold. He's such a good man, very gentle and manly, loving and caring, family-oriented and very smart. I believe we'd make great parents and a good couple. I just don't know what to do from here. Is it me? Am I just living a fantasy? Or is patience really a virtue? I really need your advice on this one. I've exhausted all my options. Okay. I listened very carefully to everything you said. And it sounds to me like he is mind fornicating you. 
You can only talk about your situation when you're ready. Who are we kidding here? He's the one who's not ready. He's involved with someone else and he is toying with you. He's hot and cold and goes off the radar. In other words, he's nowhere. So you really need to look at yourself and you need to realize why you aren't seeing the truth here. You're attached to someone who is not available. And what really concerns me is that you're allowing him to gaslight you into believing the stall is on your side. Give me a break. I encourage you to do some soul searching and really think back to your early life. Your early life is the place where the blueprint of future relationships was written. And I'm betting you had an unavailable parent. And this experience would have primed you for falling for someone who's unavailable. And in my book, Kiss Your Fights Goodbye, I have a chapter on old scars, and I list the relationship issues that arrive from, arise from each of these old scars, and I outline how to heal the old scar that applies to you. Once you identify your old scar and you heal it, you're not going to feel so much love for this man any longer. Bottom line, he isn't behaving in a loving way toward you. He's toying with you, and he's playing with your feelings, and you deserve way more. And I promise when you heal the old scar, you will not feel the same love for this man. A great deal of love comes from the yearning and the yearning to be a good and loving girl and finally win the unavailable parent's love is what seems to be driving you. All kids believe that the world revolves around them. That's called the narcissism of childhood. And all kids live under the omnipotent, meaning all powerful fantasy, that they have the ability to change the world around them. The child thinks if I'm really good and loving, I will fix my parent and he or she will finally love me. And when all attempts fail because we can't change another person, the kid carries that old scar into adulthood and finds an unavailable partner to fix. And the fantasy continues. I'm going to be good and loving and Mr. or Ms. Unavailable is going to come around. And when he or she comes around, I'm going to feel as though I healed my old scar that I suffered as a kid. But this dance rarely bears the fruits we hope, precisely because we choose partners who are limited and damaged in the exact way our parents were. In other words, the partners we unconsciously choose to heal our old scars can't give us any more or any be better than our parents did. But we don't want to give up because that's going to feel like giving up the hope of healing our old scar. And the repetitive dance involves keeping those blinders on and not seeing the truth about the other person. To see the truth feels too heartbreaking and shatters the illusion that we will one day win the goodies from our partner that we lack from our parents. So when you connect the dots by identifying your old scar and when you embrace the truth that the lack of availability and love you experienced as a kid had nothing to do with your lack of lovability, your world will begin to change for the better. And when you take in the truth that the injury you suffered, the abandonment, lack of love, or outright abuse was not due to your being flawed or unlovable, but due to your parents' limitations and wounds, your wound will begin to heal. And as you heal, you will not find yourself attracted to unavailable men anymore. And then the door will open to a new and complete love. You know, I've helped thousands of people reach this point and you can reach this point as well. I really know you can, and I want you to. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to think about um, something that I may have neglected to um, say, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a break. And when that comes back to me, I'll mention it. So let's take a break. 
And we'll be back in a moment on Ask Dr. Love. You're listening to Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf. If your heart is still hurting over the bodily loss of your loved one, the reason is simple. We're not meant to be separated from those we love, and reconnecting is the only way to end the grief. But reconnecting and staying connected requires guidance. As a gift to her listeners, Dr. Turndorf is offering a limited number of discounted grief relief sessions to help you reestablish a relationship with loved ones in spirit and resolve any unfinished issues. If you're ready to experience the healing and joy of reconnecting, visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to schedule your session. But don't wait. Space is limited. Visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to find out more. And now, back to Dr. Turndorf. Hello again. I'm Dr. Jamie Turndorf, and I'm answering your questions. Before we took the break, I knew there was something else that I wanted to say regarding this question. Is it blind love or true love? I recently put into the store at Ask Dr. Love, Dr. Love's Relationship Toolkit. This is a very, very cool tool for you because what it has is all the tests that I've ever created over the decades to help you assess the relationship you're in. So for example, there's a test in the toolkit. Is it, Are you in love or only in lust? There are tests to measure whether you're compatible. There are, there are tests to look at whether the person you're interested in is actually ready for love or has too many old scars. There's also your own personality profile to look at what your old scars are, and the test helps you identify what they are. And so many tests. Are you sexually compatible? Um, I even have uh, guides to help you define who your ideal partner is how to, um, there's one amazing guide called critical questions to ask before you get close so that you can assess the other person before you get in too deep to find out if this person really is right for you. These tests, these uh, pre-relationship tests are really helpful if, you're, if you've gone through a really bad breakup or divorce and you're afraid to stick your toe back in the dating pool or perhaps you're scared to re-enter the dating scene after um, the bodily loss of a loved one. So there's something in these in this toolkit for everyone. And I posted, it's just like, it's for pennies. So take advantage of these these um, these tests and guides in the toolkit it really help your relationships. Okay, here's the next question. Interfaith relationships, how to come up with compromises that are fair to both people. So I, 31 slash F, grew up in moderate Muslim background. I'm more liberal than my parents and don't believe all the same interpretations as my parents, but I still consider myself a part of my faith and my faith is still very important to me. My BF, 31 slash M, of three years, was raised by a very Catholic mother but considers himself atheist. My BF has always known that though I'm a more liberal-leaning Muslim woman in a lot of ways, I'm also, when it comes to my own preference, more of the prim and proper type, probably at least in part due to my upbringing. More specifically, marriage is very important to me, both because of my faith and religious beliefs, and also I just want to be married. I didn't think this was totally odd or unreasonable previously. 
I brought up marriage very early on in our relationship just to know his thoughts on marriage and to establish that it's something that's important to me. At that time, he said, we're still getting to know each other and he doesn't think it's a conversation we can have just yet. This is my first interfaith relationship. And in my past relationships, it was just established that marriage is the end goal. So I thought maybe what he said makes sense and thought that I had at least successfully established that the import of the, the importance of marriage to me. I thought that I would wait until he was ready for that conversation. My boyfriend recently brought up the topic of living together and having kids, and I was a little confused. To me, having kids is way more serious than marriage because you're bringing a new life that is entirely dependent on the two of you into the world. I told him that I don't intend on living together and especially having kids until marriage. He's now started to tell me that he doesn't care about marriage and he sees no value in it aside from tax purposes. And I told him if he doesn't care and sees at least one value and he knows how important it is to me, why wouldn't he consider it? And he said it's a very serious thing and he wouldn't consider it until we've lived together. I mentioned that he was essentially living with me for three months while he was looking for a new apartment and we stay at each other's places for days at a time. And doesn't that give him the info he needs? And he said, actually live together for an extended period of time. He then brought up my family situation and how my mom still isn't accepting of our relationship and I haven't told my dad. My relationship with my dad is not that level of close and normally I would only tell him if we had decided to get engaged like I did with my previous relationship. I told him that getting engaged would actually probably help make the situation with my parents much easier and his response was that I care too much what they think and I need to be comfortable with a modern relationship and not give two um, poops. I've changed the word for terrestrial radio to poops what they think and that I should be able to do that and that I should know him well enough to know if I see a future with him or not. And I can't place prerequisites like getting engaged or married because that's just me wanting everything to be perfect my way. But if I should know him well enough by now, shouldn't he also know by now whether he sees marriage with me also? I mean, I just feel crazy or like I'm missing something because I just don't understand how I'm being unreasonable here. When I said marriage is also very important to me because of my faith and that I'm not going to take other steps like having kids until then, he started talking about how stupid religion is. I'm not asking him to believe the same things I do, but if you're with someone who has certain beliefs, shouldn't you at least have some modicum of respect for that? Otherwise, why enter into a relationship with any person of faith? I just don't know where to go from here. Okay. You've explained the situation very clearly, and I'm really sorry to have to tell you, I don't see much hope for you to go anywhere. You're both very incompatible. Your values do, no, do not coincide at all, and that's not going to change. You've stretched yourself to the point that you have consented to live with him for months at a time, which surely goes against your values. And if he doesn't know that you're the one for him after months of living together, he's not the one. He sounds very inflexible. He borders on a commitment phobic. How dare he ask you to violate your values to the point of having kids outside of marriage? Now, if he said, Let's live together and then we'll get engaged and wait to have kids until we're married. I might feel better about the situation. But from the way you've reported your conversations, he sounds controlling and judgmental. Even if he were to come around and say he'd marry you, do you want to be married to someone who looks down his nose at your values? He's already demonstrating a rigidity of character and I am afraid for you. I fear that your life with him is going to be filled with many arguments in which he belittles and disrespects you. 
I have a suggestion for you. There's a chapter in Kiss Your Fights Goodbye on value conflicts, which is what you two have. And in the chapter, I explain values are not wrong or right. They simply are either the same or different. And couples with different values have to be willing to respect each other's values as essential parts of the self. And the only way to work with value conflicts is to come up with collaborative choices that respect both partners' values. I would like to see whether he's willing to read the chapter and embrace the truth of what I say. And if he's not willing to read the chapter and shift how he handles your value differences, run for your life. Okay, let me know how this goes. Here's the next question. Why is it so hard for him to understand my situation? My boyfriend and I are in 10 months of a relationship, but we don't get a chance to date like any other couples. The reason is that I have very strict parents and they don't let me go out with anyone. When we were in three months, I dated once with him without being caught by my parents taking a risk. After that, we didn't see each other anymore. He's been asking me to try to encourage my parents, and I've tried a million times, but it didn't work. His friends' couples are posting their dating photos on social media, and he's very depressed by that. And I also have too much pressure on me when he asks me to tell my parents. Why can't he understand my situation? My parents are very strict, and they still think I'm a kid even now that I'm 18. At the start of the relationship, he really cared about me and wouldn't do anything that made me cry or angry. But now I think he's losing feelings because even if I'm crying in front of him, he doesn't seem to care. Even I'm explaining why I'm mad at him or what he's done to make me mad. He just says, why are you always complaining about things? What's wrong with you? And he walks away upset without comforting me or apologizing. I have to apologize after that. I admit that I'm a really sensitive person and I cry very over very little details, but that's because I love him. I'm being clingy because I'm in love. And the other thing is he stops posting me on his social media. Whenever his friends ask him why he stops, he says, uh, we can't date. I mean, is that really, does that really matter when we're in love, that dating thing? And that really upsets me because if I were him, it's not that big a problem for me as long as we're in love. We still have a chance to meet in the future, even if I don't know when. He makes me the happiest person in the world most of the time, but I still have bad days that I cry all night in bed. Is he losing feelings for me? Am I the only one who is putting much effort? Should I end this relationship? He also has childhood trauma. His parents are divorced and he's living with his grandma. Am I better off ending this? Okay, so it sounds like you're saying that you're in a relationship, but you're not dating, meaning you're not able to see each other in person apart from that first sneak date. This is a very painful situation, and I do understand he's becoming less supportive of you when you cry because he himself is very frustrated by the situation, and he sounds very young and very impatient. At what age are your parents willing to let you date? If you can get an actual number out of your parents, maybe you could give him something to look forward to. And I'd also encourage you to focus on understanding his feelings and not put the burden on him to, to carry your feelings on top of his own. And to do this, you could say, I know how difficult and frustrating our situation is. I love you so much and don't want to lose you. And I would like to brainstorm with you on what we could do to influence my parents to allow me to date you. Is there any way he could appeal to your parents in person? If he were to tell them how much he cares for you and how serious his intentions are, they might feel better about allowing you to date him. This kind of move is very old fashioned for sure, but your parents are old fashioned. And I think his making this appeal to them will win your parents over. So let me know how your discussions with him and your parents go. So there is um, 
a there's a question here that I want to get to, and I'm not sure we're going to have time to do everything, but I really want to get to this one. This is called Second Husbands Exhibiting Behaviors from My First Husband, Yuck. I ended a 16-year relationship because my husband was a chronic marijuana user. Now my new husband of 15 years has started using it on a daily basis to self-medicate serious PTSD from 20 years in law enforcement. I absolutely despise this behavior, but my husband has been wonderful up until this recent diagnosis. What should I do? I can't even stand the smell of it in my house. We're fighting all the time now when our relationship has been butterflies and rainbows until recently. I love him so much, but have lost a lot of respect. Okay. This is a godsend that you asked me this question. Maybe you didn't know that I wrote a book in the past year on how to reverse PTSD. And the book is called, If You Think You Don't Have PTSD, Think Again. The impetus for my writing the book sprang from my falling in love with a state trooper with serious PTSD. And the long story short, like many people with PTSD, he needed to put himself in isolation to control the stimuli coming at him, which is a common reaction in PTSD. And the long story short, he withdrew and it broke my heart. And I vowed to search high and low to find a way to reverse PTSD. And I did. For one year, I wrote a magazine column called Winning the War on PTSD. And each month I presented the latest published scientific research on what causes PTSD and what reverses it. And what I uncovered shocked me because there's a very simple solution. And most doctors are just so busy seeing patients that they don't take the time to read the scientific literature and research journals and get informed on the latest research. So here's what the research says, and I'm gonna boil this down for you in a nutshell. All it takes is one accident, one illness, or one stress for PTSD to develop. Who reaches adulthood without suffering one accident, one illness, or one stressful event? Nobody. And of course, police officers experience stress on a daily basis. When we experience an accident, an illness, or a stress, the body rapidly excretes all its magnesium stores from our cells. And the research is amazingly clear. The rapid loss of magnesium causes something called HPA axis dysfunction, which instantly triggers PTSD. It's as simple as that. But what is amazing is the research unequivocally shows that supplementing with magnesium reverses PTSD and it reverses it right away. And there's a lot of research proving this. It's simple, but true. But there is a catch. Oral magnesium is not well absorbed by most people. The workaround is to apply the magnesium on the skin, which enables it to enter the bloodstream right away and bypass the digestion so that you don't get diarrhea and lose the absorption of the magnesium. I have watched PTSD literally vaporize in front of my eyes when my patients apply the magnesium on their skin. And I know it seems too good to be true, but what I'm telling you is the God's truth. And I discovered the electromagnesium, the purest and most potent form of transdermal magnesium. And that's the one that I recommend to all my patients and TV and radio audiences. And I always say, I don't sell the product. I don't make commissions. I'm not an affiliate. It's a mission for me because I know we all have some degree of PTSD and I want to get the word out. And I recommend electromagnesium as a public service. And if you use the code Dr. Jamie, you know, period Dr. Jamie, 
Dr. Jamie, you'll receive a discount on your first order. And if you order a hundred Australian dollars, the shipping is free right around now. Now, Electra is beginning to sell on Amazon in the US and uh, they at this point have their most potent form of magnesium, the magnesium spritz oil, which is what you want to be using when you have PTSD. 21 sprays of the spritz oil, three divided doses per day. So I really encourage you and your guy to read my PTSD book. The science is going to floor you both. And by the way, many other conditions like pain syndromes, sexual dysfunctions, mood disorders, depression, anxiety, and even bipolar disorder, digestive disorders, and addictions are in fact symptoms of PTSD. And I want you to be patient with your guy. His use of marijuana is a desperate attempt to calm down his nervous system because when PTSD strikes, the body goes into hyperarousal and never comes out of it. And marijuana is a temporary tranquilizer, but it doesn't address the underlying cause of PTSD, but the magnesium does. Magnesium is a very powerful and potent central nervous system tranquilizer. And here's a couple more facts for you. Magnesium is needed in 1,040 enzymatic bodily functions. Most diseases and conditions are a magnesium deficiency in disguise. Most people are deficient in magnesium because our food supply lacks the essential nutrients due to depleted soil. As we age, magnesium deficiency grows worse, which explains why we grow sicker as we age. And the prescribed drugs used to treat the conditions we develop flush magnesium from the body, which explains why people end up sicker as they pile on the drugs, more magnesium deficient and sicker. And last but not least, don't let your doctor fool you about this. Blood tests do not accurately measure our cellular magnesium level. This is because the body has to maintain serum magnesium levels within a very narrow range or else a heart attack will instantly occur. And while the blood levels of magnesium may appear normal, most of us have raging cellular magnesium deficiency. So I really urge you to read the book. If you think you don't have PTSD, think again. See all the science proving what I've just told you and get him and yourself on electromagnesium right away. Her um, Sandy's address is Electra with a K, E-L-E-K-T-R-A, magnesium.com.au. And you can use that code, Dr. Jamie. And again, you want to use the spritz oil for treating PTSD because it's the strongest formula Electra makes. And you're going to need 21 sprays per day in three divided doses. Now, most people with PTSD have a lot of sleep problems. So I recommend that you use the cream, which is the most weak form on your calves and soles, and then use the spray over it. So it works like a time-release sleep aid. He is going to feel the benefit from the very first dose. But remember, it can take up to two years for the depleted cells to be fully replenished. And don't worry about using too much. The body will draw the magnesium from the skin as needed. And the only thing is people with severe kidney damage may have trouble assimilating magnesium, but the problem is mitigated by applying the magnesium to the skin. So I want you to keep in touch with me and please let me know how you're both doing because I am keeping track of all the case studies, you know, of all the people that I've worked with who have PTSD. Okay. 
Let's see if I can get to this last question. I still have a few minutes left. Let's see if we can do this. Um, am I better off ending this? I'm a divorced man who is involved with a married woman who is in a dead marriage. Our relationship is amazing when we are together, but toxic and full of mistrust when we are apart because she does not trust me nor I her. This may sound simple, but we have gone through a lot together and experienced the highest highs and the lowest lows. But now the bad times outdo the good five to one. But I'm wrestling my head and heart and so scared to walk away because the bad only exists because of our need to be in the shadows. Please help me see clearly. Okay, this is a really tough situation. So the question is, why is she willing to stay in a ma bad marriage and a dead marriage? And why are you willing to take only crumbs? Why are you willing to accept being the other man? You both don't trust each other. And this tells me you both have old scars from your early life. And early relationships are the blueprint for your adult relationships. Who didn't you trust growing up? Who didn't she trust? You're, you, if you guys want to understand more, work together to identify your mutual old scars and use the love that you feel for each other to help each other heal these old scars. And as the old scars heal, what's going to happen is something's going to change. She'll either leave the marriage or you'll find that you want more. In any case, things will move forward. All right, that's all I have for you this week. I'll see you next time on Ask Dr. Love. You've been listening to Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf. Sign up for Dr. Jamie's newsletter at askdrlove.com and receive her meditation audio that will guide you to open your heart and chill out during these stressful times. Thank you.